In the first hour, I mentioned that the reason that I became, to a degree, an authority on the strategy of Islam was because I wanted to find out why various groups were growing in the world. As I began to look at Islam, I was impressed, very much impressed, with their growth and particularly with their strategy and the effectiveness of their strategy. Well, I wrote the book, How Islam Plans to Change the World, and I must admit that I think I was a little bit surprised as to the success of the book. Actually, I have had the book translated at this time into uh, uh, three other languages. It's in Korean, of all things. Recently, I went to Korea, and I was speaking to a, a large group of Koreans, and they said that the Muslims have decided that in observing the Muslim Christian missionaries, I mean the Christian missionaries coming from Korea, that they are the most effective in the world. Therefore, we want to have a revival of Islam in Korea to gain this expertise and to make the Koreans missionaries for Islam instead of missionaries for Christianity. And so uh, Korea now has a large number of missionaries from uh, Iran and from uh, the Muslim world. Then another one is in Spanish, and that's been quite successful. And then another one has been in German, and also that's been successful. So um, I hope, too, that it'll be translated in some other languages. It's being worked on now in Russian and in Chinese. And uh, we will see what happens in the future with that. Now, we've been talking about this strategy. They, they have a desire to take over the world. The Quran says the day will come before the world comes to an end that the whole world will be Muslim. So they are working towards that end. As I began studying about Islam, I was asking several people about this. And I remember speaking to an imam in Germany one time, and uh, he made a, a, an interesting comparison. He said to me, uh, Mr. Wagner, we in the Arab world like to tell stories and to communicate in stories. He said, let, let me describe to you a very important part of, of, our, of our missionary work that he called Dawah. He said, let me tell you what Dawah is. He said, uh, there was a story about the Arab who was going through the desert on his camel. And uh, he went ahead and said that, as you know, in the desert, in the, um, in the Muslim countries, in, in the uh, Middle East, that in the daytime it can get extremely hot. At the nighttime it gets extremely cold. So he said that here was this Arab. He was on his camel. He was going through the desert. Uh, during the day he was riding his camel. Nighttime came. He got off of his camel. He had a little tent. He built a tent. He had a little coal stove. He got some wood and chips and kind of got some coals and put the little stove into his tent. The tent became warm, and it was very warm in the tent, cold outside. And the Arab went and slept in the tent or got in the tent to go to sleep. As he was about ready to go to sleep, he heard a little bit of a noise, and he looked, and he saw the nose of the camel sticking into the tent. And he said, Camel, what are you doing? And the camel said, oh, master, it's so cold out here. But if I can just get my nose warm, I will be happy. He said, all right, that's okay. The Arab began to go to sleep again. He heard some sound, and he looked, and the whole head of the camel was in the tent. Camel, what are you doing? Oh, master, you just don't know how cold it is. And if my mind freezes, I will not be able to think and help you tomorrow. Please be patient. And the Arab said, all right. 
Started to go to sleep again, heard a sound, looked, two front paws, neck, head were all in the tent. Camel, you've come too far. Oh, master, if I freeze to death, I'll be of no help to you. All right, but no further. The Arab started to go to sleep. The next thing he knew, the whole camel was in the tent. And he said, Camel, what are you doing? And the camel replied, Get out of my tent, you stupid Arab. And he was using this as an example of, of the mission and Dawah. And he said, what we do is we will go slowly, quietly, step by step by step, until suddenly the people in the other parts of the world do not realize that they are Muslims. And I felt like that was a very good explanation of Dawah. For you see, as I discovered, as I studied about the strategy, I was able to divide the strategy of the Muslims into three major areas. Now, I must admit that I did not find these three listed in the way that I'm presenting to you. Nowhere did they say our strategy consists of three different methods, but uh, this is what I was able to determine. I was able to determine the first one is Dawah that we're going to explain about in this hour. The second one is um, Jihad, a word that most of you are aware of. And then the third one is the building and the use of the mosque. Of the mosque. So we will be spending an hour on each one of these three prongs of the strategy of Islam. I'm going to come now, first of all, to, to Dawah. In reading about uh, the strategies that they had, there was a very interesting statement by one man by the name of Caravan Mural. And uh, since I read this by Mural, I've seen it in many other places. And he said that there are three levels of strategic work of uh, Islamic dawah or of Islamic missions. He said the first level is what he would call the macro level of overall ummah and Muslim societies and states. And he said that a part of our mission is that we must find a strategy to change all of the society. We cannot be convinced only uh, with just a small part of the society. We must find a way to change the structure of the society so that the society will be more uh, open to Islam. He said the second level that they have was the level that he called the uh, intermediate level or the meta level. And he said the meta level is where we have a strategy where we try to uh, help affect and influence people at a state level or of a, of a large city level, but of a, a level that we can well define. For instance, they will have a meta strategy for the state of California or a meta strategy for the city of Los Angeles. Then he comes and says the third level is the micro level, which is the level of the individual person in small organizations. And that's when they are working with individuals, when they're working in, in an area where a mosque is located or in a part of a city, or in some rural area. It's been fascinating to me, because as I studied these three different levels, I uh, tried to compare them together with the six groups that I was studying, which I said before was the Southern Baptists, the Assemblies of God, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the homosexuals, and, and the Muslims. And it was fascinating to me, because I discovered that when you get into the micro level of strategic studies, 
the Southern Baptists, the Assemblies of God, Jehovah Witnesses, and I might even add uh, the other three are all pretty effective. In reality, the Southern Baptists and the uh, Assemblies of God are the most effective at that level. When you come up into the intermediate level, the middle level, here is an area where all six of them, again, have a pretty good strategy in place. But when you come into the macro level, and that is the level of attempting to change the society, I'm sorry to say that the Southern Baptists, the Assemblies, and even the Jehovah Witnesses do not have a very effective level at that point, a very effective work at that level. I'll tell you who does have an effective work, and that is the, is the Mormons and also the uh, homosexuals and also the, uh, the, the Muslims. All three of these concentrate at the level of, uh, of the macro level. Let me give you an example of that. I, I had an interesting discussion one time when I was on a radio interview with a, a lady up in Oregon. I won't even give you the name of the town, but it's, it's quite a liberal town. And as I was talking with her, she said, uh, now, uh, I was supposed to have a 15-minute interview on her radio program. Before I gave the interview, I asked the lady that I was talking to before I spoke with the interviewer, I said, now, what type of an audience do you have for your radio program? She said, well, we are more progressive. And I think that I knew what they were saying by being progressive. So I got on the radio and I said, now, uh, uh, I've written this book on, on Islam. And she said, why did you write the book? And I said, I wrote it because I wanted to study the growth of six different groups. And I named those. And I named the homosexuals. And she said, homosexuals don't have a strategy. I said, well, they, they really do. No, they don't have a strategy. I said, well, they, they really do. And I said, I can prove to you they have a strategy, and it's a very effective strategy. No, they don't have a strategy. And then she says, I'm gay. And I said, well, that's fine if you want to be gay. I said, I have no problems with that. But they do have a strategy. I said, for instance, I said, I'm a Southern Baptist, and I studied our strategy. She says, you're a Southern Baptist. Oh, no, I've got to spend 15 minutes on this radio program talking with a Southern Baptist. And so she started talking with me, and the next thing she said was, now, uh, uh, what about the people in Hungary in the world? I said, yeah. She said, you know, there are 5,000 statements in the Bible saying that we need to feed the hungry. I said, well, that might be true. I don't think there's that many, but, but yeah, I'll go along with that. And she says, are you feeding them? I said, yes, we are. She says, no, you're not. I said, well, fine. She says, what about the president of the United States? He's taking food out of the mouths of the hungry. And I said, well, fine. And uh, I said, and she said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, render unto God the things that are God, and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And she hung up on me. But what was interesting was when you mentioned that the homosexuals have this mega strategy in place, she would not accept it. But they have been very, very effective on being able to influence society. Whereas a few years ago, it would have been totally impossible to have accepted uh, homosexual marriage today, it is practically a fact of life. It will come about in the whole part of the Western world. I think it's a part of the moral decay. But they had a strategy that was effective. Now, the, the Muslims also have a mega strategy, a macro strategy. And this strategy is to try to find ways to change the society and the thinking of people. And I would have to say that it is at this point that they have been extremely successful. So just that you know that their dawah, their missions, basically is divided into these three different levels of strategy.
Now, when you come into Dawa, you, you say, now, now, what is Dawa exactly? Well, Dawa is a word that probably could best be uh, compared to our word missions, missions, where we have the idea of going out and talking to people, bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, making them uh, believers in the Lord, bringing them into a church, doing the evangelistic work and the mission work that's necessary. We, we would call this missions. Well, they have Dawa. And not only do they have Dawa, but they also have what they call Dai's. And a Dai is also a, a, a missionary, somewhat like we would have missionaries. The thing that is fascinating to me is do you realize that there are probably, and I, ha- I haven't been able to get the exact numbers, but I, I'm positive about the statement I'm making, there are more Dai's, Muslim missionaries, working in the United States today than there are American missionaries working in all the Muslim countries put together. There are more Dai's working in the West than there are Western missionaries working in the uh, Muslim countries. They generally are students. They many times might be individuals that you wouldn't think is, is a missionary, but they're trained, they're committed, they're desirous to bring Islam to the world. One time I was in uh, one of the cities of Morocco, and uh, as I was in, in, it was in Rabat, as I was in Rabat, I was asked to speak to the university. And the reason was, was because I was an American, and they had a class in English, and they said, would you like to speak to our class in English? And I said, yes, I'd be glad to. So it was all set up, and I came, and sure enough, there were 200 very fine-looking university students there at the university, and they were going to listen to me. As I was speaking to him, one of the things I said was, uh, I'm very impressed that you're here. Why are you learning English? One young man on the front row lifted up his hand and says, I'm learning English so that I can win the English-speaking world to, to Islam. Well, I thought that was interesting, so I said, well, that, that's good. Are there any others here that are learning English for that reason? 200 hands went up. We want to learn English so that we can be missionaries too the Western world. So they are very much involved in, in, in missions. Now, to make a comparison with, uh, with Dawa to missions, uh, I, I've tried to show how they are the same and maybe how they, they are not the same. And let me just give you uh, some differences that there are between Christian missions and between Islamic Dawa. First of all, Christian missions. Christian missions has used social action as a means of showing a love that could lead to conversion. We use social action, and we see social action as being positive, both from the aspect of saying we want to help people in their needs just because we want to help, but also because we want to show them the love of Jesus Christ. I've been to a large, large number of dialogue sessions with Muslims. And uh, we will talk and we will discuss. And so many of these basically come down at the end that the Christians have one major complaint against the Muslims and the Muslims have a major complaint against the Christians. I didn't realize that this was the case until I started participating in many of these sessions. But at the end, many of the Christians will say to the Muslims, Why is it that you in Islam do not allow Christian churches to be built or you do not allow in your Muslim lands for there to be a worship 
of the Christian faith. Whereas the Muslims come along and they say, why is it that you as Christians use the tragedies in the Muslim world to try to push your faith upon people that are suffering? Why do you bring in all of this help when there are earthquakes or there are floods? Why are you using this as an inroad to try to convert our people? In fact, today, if you have an earthquake in Turkey or in any of the Muslim countries, it is forbidden for them to send in anything, any type of help, whether it be tent or foods or anything else, uh, with a Christian sign on it. It has to have the Red Crescent on it. It can't even have the Red Cross. And it can't even say on it, coming from a Western country, because that would be trying to show people that Christians have love. So we as Christians use social action as a means of showing a love that could lead to conversion. In Islamic Dawah, Islam uses social service only within their own mosque as a part of the service that a believer can obtain after conversion. But most do not consider it as a part of Dawah. So they do not use social action to try to convert people to their belief system. In fact, uh, they, I was talking to a man from China one time, and, and he had some experiences down in Darfur. And he said it was his experience that the only people that the Muslims were helping in Darfur were those that were willing or ready or able to convert to Islam. In other words, if you convert, then you become of the Ummah, you become a part of the Ummah, you then can receive the social goods, whereas in Christianity, we give them out. And if it does have an influence, we're very happy about that. Christian missions are uh, uses large numbers of full-time missionaries who are involved in a cultural incarnation ministry. Islam depends mostly on uh, semi-trained lay people and mosque leaders who are called dais for their particular form of mission. Three, Christian missions emphasizes a cultural divergence that seeks to create indigenous churches within the existing social structure. You see, we have a, a one concept in, in Christian missions called contextualization, where we say, let's allow people to live within their own uh, culture and to accept and to put the Christian teachings and message within their culture. But when you come to Islam, Islam seeks to bring uniformity in law, culture, and religious practices. Even though the Muslims understand contextualizations very well, they do not use that as a part of their missionary strategy. This Muslim World League journal that I spoke about the other day had what I feel was one of the best articles I've ever read on contextualization. And it explained Christian contextualization from A to Z, an excellent article. But the problem was, at the end, they said, we do not believe that this is the way that Islam should be spread. Islam is more of a conformity type of a religion. Four, mission, uh, Christian missions emphasizes going. Islamic Dawah emphasizes coming. Now, if you, if you look at missions, missions is to go forth. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations and, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even into the end of the world. Now, the word dawah in the Arab language means come, invite, 
bring people to them. So there, there is a strong emphasis on this fact of come and see who we are, come and experience who we are. And there is not that, that much going out in the same way as we have within our, our structure. Five, Christian missions invites people to become members of churches. Islamic Dawah invites people to become members of the Ummah. And the Ummah is the community of God. And the Ummah means that once you join the Ummah, you are a part of this huge community of people who are believers in Christ. Now, one fascinating aspect of Islam is that community is extremely important to them. Whereas I think that community is not nearly as important to us in the Western world because in the Western world, we, we learn individuality, the importance of the individual. Whereas in, in Islam, it is much more of the community. And they can have mass conversions much more readily than we can have mass conversions within Christianity. Maybe a good example of that was uh, probably about 10, 15 years ago, there was a movement among the outcasts in India. And some of the leaders of the outcasts, which is a bottom caste uh, in the system of India, which which these people have very little future, very little wealth. They're, they're, they're looked down upon by the other castes above them. And these outcasts finally came and they said, why are we going to become, why are we going to remain um, Hindus when we're cast out, when we have no future? Why don't we change our religion and change it to something else? So they said three possibilities is Buddhism and, and Islam and Christianity. And they talked a little bit about um, Islam, and we don't want to become Muslims because there was too much animosity between them. Uh, what about Christians? So they came to some of our Christian leaders and they said, we as a caste, as a major group of people, would like to convert to Christianity. Is that possible? And the Christian leaders they spoke to at that time said, no, it's not impossible because we only believe in an individual conversion, one by one. And we have to talk to all of these millions of people and win them to the Lord. Well, they were a little bit disappointed with that, so the final decision was made for them to convert to Buddhism. About that time, the government got wind of what was happening, came in, stopped that movement, and it came to an end so that there was no, no mass conversion. However, it's interesting to note that the, this movement is, is alive again in India about the outcasts converting to some other religion. Now the Christians begin to realize that it is possible to have a multi-conversion experience by a people group and that discipleship follows after the conversion has taken place. But in Islam, the community is of extreme importance. Now, six, Christian missions engages in the establishment of schools, hospitals, and other benevolent institutions through cooperative methods. Islamic Dawah stresses the construction of a mosque and there establishes, and, and they establish their ministries in the mosque. You do not see Muslim hospitals being built around the world today. You, you do see Muslim schools being built, but you do not see hospitals. You don't see uh, uh, clinics. They, they, they handle that through the mosque, and even their schools begin, in most cases, in the mosque or together with the mosque. In Christian missions, the church is uh, to be responsible for the propagation of the faith. In Islamic Dawah, the Ummah, the people of God, are responsible for the propagation of the faith. Eight, 
Conversion through conquest is no longer considered a valid form of missions for the Christians. We no longer believe that conversion and then forced uh, change is valid. Whereas for the Muslim, conversion through armed conflict is considered helpful and considered to be a part of Dawah. Now, what are some of the similarities that they have between Dhamma and Christian missions? You need to be able to see these to see uh, how they are working. One, both have well-defined philosophies as well as fully thought-out methodologies. It used to be probably back in the 1960s that, that, that Islam really didn't have a good, well-thought-out philosophy. They were saying, we've got to do something. Their literature was of poor quality. Their, their videos were, were, were of poor quality. That has changed radically. Today, they know where they're going. They know what they're doing. They know Christian missions frontwards and backwards and upside down. They understand what we're doing. And the strategy that they have developed, I'm afraid, is even superior to the strategy that, that we as Christians are propagating today uh, in the Western world. Two, both see their faith as a worldwide faith, although their areas of strength are localized. Islam claims to have a million people. I was talking to a Muslim one time, and they said there's a big sign as you enter into a Mecca today that says, uh, Islam now has a million adherents. Now, that could be true. I mean, a billion, a billion. So one-sixth of the population of the world would be um, uh, Muslim. They claim to be the fastest-growing religion in the world today, but studies that have been made says that they are faster growing than Christianity and, and any of the other major religions of the world. But if you compare evangelical Christianity and charismatic Christianity with the growth of Islam in the world, both evangelical Christianity and charismatic Christianity are growing at a more rapid rate. But when you bring in the other groups of Christians, such as the, the more ecumenical Protestants and the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, then Islam is growing at a faster rate. Both have mission organizations that have as their main purpose the furtherance of their faith. More and more, you are going to see organizations that are Muslim organizations in the West that will have the word Dawah in, in them. It used to be that the word Dawah was practically never seen in any of the literature or newspapers or magazines in the West, but more and more you're going to see that word Dawah and in every instance, that, that indicates that this is a mission organization working um, for the proclamation of their, of their faith. Both see conversion to their belief as a positive aspect of their actions. Both seek to convert people to their faith. The other day, I had a baptism in my church. I have an Iranian church, and uh, I baptized two uh, people that actually came from Islam into Christianity, and I baptized them. And I said, once you are baptized and you become a member of the church, and I was talking to some other Muslims one time, I said, what do you have to do to become a member of the, of the mosque to really become a part of the uh, Islamic movement? And they said, very simply, you have to stand up before a group of Muslims and sincerely say there is only one God, and, and uh, the prophet is Muhammad. And once you've said that before those people, you then begin, you, you are a Muslim at that particular point. Um, both see the actions of the others as satanic 
and have some fear of the other successes. Um, I, I have a hard time not describing some of their actions as being satanic. Of course, you know that there are revolutions taking place in various countries where there is a, a large number of Muslims, and like in Iran, where they have these big signs of the great Satan, and, and we are the great Satan, America is the great Satan, and they say that it will be defeated. So so they, they see us as being satanic. We have a tendency to see them as being satanic, and um, this is a part of both dawah and, and missions. Um, both Christianity and Islam are fractured religions, which have many different expressions and theologies. This plurality carries over to missions and to dawah. It's been said before that if the Muslim countries of the Middle East could ever all agree together, form one government, form one uh, uh, mission uh, agency, one philosophy that uh, the world would be a totally different world than it is today. But they are fractured, they have problems, they have difficulties. And we'd probably have to say the same thing with Christians. We, we have all kinds of Christian missions, we have all kinds of different varying ideas, ideologies, philosophies, and, and therefore we are fractured and that has not always been real helpful. Both are aware of the paradigm shift taking place worldwide and feel there is a spiritual vacuum that they can fill. All you have to do is to look at America and see what is happening in America today, to look at the economic downturn, to look at the, the problems that we have, to look at the rising number of divorces, to look at the stress, to look at the, the medical problems, to say there is a vacuum. And Islam sees this vacuum in the West, and they're saying we will come in and we will fill this vacuum exactly the way as we as Christians feel that we must come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ to fill this vacuum and to help people once again to have a purpose in life. Nine, both see Eastern Europe as fertile few uh, fields for expansion. Both Eastern Europe and I would say also um, going all the way over into Central Asia and uh, Islam has been very active. I was in Kyrgyzia and Kazakhstan back when the wall was still up. And even though they were, most of the people in these countries were Muslims, Islam was not doing very well. There was one mosque in, in uh, the capital city of Kyrgyzstan, and, and it was pretty well torn down. But as soon as the wall came down, there was a flood of money and individuals and missionaries that came into Central Asia and came into places such as um, uh Romania and Hungary, proclaiming Islam, and they, they have been somewhat successful in these areas. In fact, I was in uh, one of the cities of, of Siberia, and the person that was there working with me said, Brother Wagner, you're going to see a lot of new mosques being built. I saw one mosque after the other after the other, and I said, why are they building them? They said, because Siberia is one of their main points of emphasis today. Ten. Both extend a call for people to enter into a broad community of believers, Christians into the kingdom of God and Muslims into the Ummah. So there, there is a, a similarity between what the Muslims are doing and what the, the Christians are doing, bringing them in to the community, bringing them in to their belief system. Now, Let's look at Dawah and the way that they have worked here in the United States and let's say in other parts of the world. One of the areas that they have been extremely successful has been 
in the schools and in the academic world. Now, I mentioned the fact that there were many dais that are working in the United States today. Most of these dais are university students. Most of them are coming from Saudi Arabia. Many come from Morocco. Many come from Egypt. But these are university students that are here. They are trained or they are semi-trained to do missionary work. I was speaking one time in a German Baptist church, and there was a German girl that came and said, Brother Whitener, you know, I'm in the university, and there's a young man, and he came from uh, Saudi Arabia. And so I thought, well, maybe I could witness to this young man. So I went to this young man, and I started talking to him about Jesus and about his need for Jesus. And he said, oh, that's very interesting, very interesting. And he said, could we have another discussion? And they made an appointment about two or three weeks later. And uh, as they they'd had this appointment, they said, all right, what we will do is we will talk again. This time when they got together, there was three of them and all three of these were dais, and she said, boy, they put pressure on me to become a Muslim. Said, I was, I was taken back by what they were saying. There are dais all over that are students. Now, not too long ago, there was a limited number of students from Saudi Arabia here in the, in the United States, and for some reason, President Bush made a decision that this year that there would be 4,600 more students from Saudi Arabia studying in our universities and colleges. And they're here now, and again, many of these are dais. One of the things that they have done quite successfully in the academic world is they go to universities. And I know of a number of universities in America today where they have been approached or they have already built a building and there will be uh, some Muslims that will come and they will say, we notice that you don't have a department of religion. And so what we would like to do is we would like to build you a new building, five-story building for a department of religion on your campus. Now, we will build this building for you. We will pay for it. There's no problems. We will give it to you as a gift to the university. The only requirement that we have on this, the only requirement that we have is that the director be a Muslim. Otherwise, there are no other requirements. And I know of five universities, one Baptist university in the South, that now has a new building for the Department of Religion, one or two in Southern California, in case you're interested, and, and they have it. Another Muslim was telling me a story one time, and I, I never really quite, quite in, appreciated what he was saying until I started hearing about this idea of these academic buildings. He said, he said there was a man that had a house, and he said this man wanted to sell the house, and so he put it up for sale. And a young couple came and said, we'd like to buy the house. He says, all right. Um, how much does it cost? And he gave a figure. And the young couple said, oh, that's wonderful. Do we get everything in it? You get everything in the house. Everything belongs to you for that price. There's only one thing that I want. What's that? I have a, a great love for a nail. And the nail is stuck in the wall. And I want to continue to own that nail. The couple said, a nail and a wall, and you want on that? Yeah. Okay, you, you can have it. And I, I need to have visitation rights to it whenever I want to see it, to visit my nail. Okay, no problem. So they bought the house. So about once every month, the guy would knock and say, I want to see my nail. <laughs> come on in. He'd come in and sit down and stare at his nail for about an hour and take off again. A couple weeks later, I want to see my nail. Okay, and so he came, sat down, watched his nail for a couple hours and took off. 
Then pretty soon he started coming every day. And pretty soon he stayed all the time watching his nail until the family got so upset with him they left the house and he got his house back because he owned his nail. And so it's the same way. You can you can have this building, we'll give it to you, but all we want is the directorship, and that's all. And in most cases, before you know it, that whole department of religion is an Islamic religion, uh, a house of uh, religious studies. Now, another place that they have been successful, and I have this in the back of my book, is a letter that they have sent to all of the schools in California, all of the schools in California. And this school, this letter has come from the Islamic Speakers Bureau. And they sent them to the, uh, to the principals and to the leaders uh, of, of schools. And in this, they come along and they say, what we would like to do is we would like to help your school to understand another culture. We realize that cross-cultural studies is very important in, in our world today. And, and your students need to learn about another culture. We're ready to come in for eight hours and to help your students learn another culture. It'll be free. You don't have to pay for it. And we will come and bring all of the props with us. And all you have to do is to let us come in. And many schools in California have allowed them to come in. And I was talking to one school teacher that had a group of sixth graders. And the principal said, you have to do this. We need to learn uh, intercultural studies and learn about other cultures. So what they did, they came in. And the man had uh, different uh, costumes. And they said, now, in the Middle East, we wear a different costume. We wear kind of a flowing robe for the men. The women wear a, a black gown. And then they, they, they cover their hair. And, and they do this. And we'd like to have you wear the same thing. So they all put, all the kids put them on. And then they go ahead and say, now, we have different names. We have the name Mohammed and Ali and Fatah and et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to give you all these Muslims' names. So they give all the kids their Muslim names. And, and they're so happy, you know. And now what we do is we have within in our custom, we have some very important holidays and observances. And one of them is Ramadan. And what we do is we, we fast and we don't eat and, and pretend like you're fasting. And tomorrow we don't want you to eat any lunch and, and you, you'll fast, you know, like we do. And then we also have another celebration that we call uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And they have this black box that they bring, and they put that in the school. And they say, now, here's a black box. And what we do is we go seven times around this black box, and this black box. And as we go around this black box, we pray. So just pray as you're going around the black box. And, and all the kids get up, and they go around there, and they have this, this activity, and they do it. And then they say, and also when we pray, we pray in a particular way. And when we pray, what we do is we get down on our, in our, on our knees, and that means our going is subject to God. And then we go ahead and we put our hands down on the floor. And that means our doing is subject to God. And then we put our head on the f floor. And that means our thinking is subject to God. Now do that. And all the kids did it. Isn't that wonderful? When it's all over with, the whole class has been indoctrinated into Islamic teaching. In that same school... If the teacher were to mention the name Jesus Christ, she would be released immediately. You cannot do it. They've been very, very clever in working in the schools. The other day, I was reading an <clears throat> article about a new textbook that's just appeared in the schools in California. And in this textbook, they define as 
jihad as being loving your brother and your sister. Jihad means loving your brother and your sister. Of course, we realize it doesn't mean that at all. And in this textbook, they had something like 35 chapters. In these 35 chapters, they had 18 chapters dedicated to furthering Islam, and they just barely even mentioned Christianity in these chapters. They've been very, very effective in the area of the academic world. I uh, I know of a situation down in Zambia where at the universities of Zambia they had a great need for university professors, and uh, the, the university couldn't afford them. So Egypt came in and said, what we will do is we will provide for you 20 professors at the university level, all will have their Ph.D. degrees. They will be in various subjects, and they could all speak English because the university there speaks English, and we will let you have 20 professors at no cost whatsoever, and they will help you, and they will stay for 20 years for you. Zambia was very happy, and they said, we, we, we need these professors. They were all dyes and all with the express purpose of trying to convert people in Zambia to Islam. They have been very, very successful in the academic world. They've also been pretty successful in the political world. I was in Malawi, and I go there quite often. And in Malawi, they had an election, oh, about six, seven years ago. And when this election took place, they uh, had one man running who was a Muslim. Well, 78% of the population of Malawi are Christians. And so what they were doing is they said, we've got this one Muslim... There was literally millions and millions and millions of dollars that was flooded in to Malawi from Saudi Arabia until the next thing you know that the president of Saudi of, of Malawi was a Muslim. Now in almost every little village in, in Malawi, they now have a mosque. A mosque has been built in all of these little villages. Not only has a mosque been built in these villages, but also they built a school. And this is a secondary school for boys And it's known now that if you want to get very high in the government of Malawi, you have to be a part of, you have to go to this school, and it is a Muslim school teaching Islam from the beginning to the end. They've been very successful in these areas and places such as in Africa. Uh, You go down to South Africa, and South Africa, they have been able to infiltrate the government very, very well. They, the top leadership are not Muslims. The second tier of leadership are not Muslims. But you get down to the third tier of leadership, and they have a great presence. And those are the ones that are doing most of the work uh, in the government. They've been successful. Well, not only do they, have they been successful in the academic world, but they've been very successful in prisons. In prisons. In the United States, almost, if not every single prison has a uh, Muslim imam or chaplain that is working in that prison. Again, their purpose is to convert people to Islam. And uh, the latest statistic that I've seen says that about 30,000 convert to Muslim, to Islam, every year in the prisons of the United States of America. Most of those that convert are primarily black Americans, But it's not always the case. In some instances, we've had some Hispanic Americans also convert to Islam. They have uh, several things going for them. Number one, within the prison itself, they have these groupings. And these groupings exist, whether they're ethnic groupings or racial groupings, they have them. 
And so the Muslim group that is, exists in these prisons is generally pretty violent and, and pretty uh, high profile. And so if you become a Muslim, if you convert to the Muslim, you have the protection of this group, you begin to be a part of this group, and that gives you a, a particular identity which is very, very positive uh, within that prison society. So many of them become uh, Muslims because of that. Now, they have another thing going for them, and that's this, that if a prisoner becomes a Muslim, then another force kicks in outside the prison where the uh, mosque takes the responsibility to help the family outside of prison. Again, with their tremendous financial resources, they are in a position to help that family to pay for some of the needs that they have and to take care of them. So if you're a prisoner in a prison, you become a part of a, of a recognized uh, clique. You have your family taken care of. There are a lot of reasons why people that are in prison would want to uh, uh, change and uh, go into Islam. They are working with my minorities. They're working with minorities. Uh, let me give you several illustrations of minorities. One of the groups that they're working with is the Indians. And, you know, you'd say, well, why in the world would they work with American Indians? They're working with American Indians because they are saying that, in reality, many of the American Indians at one time used to be Muslims. For instance, uh, one lady wrote this, said, Seminoles in Florida claim that some of their members, uh, of their numbers, are descendants from African slaves who before emancipation managed to escape and mingle in their ranks, even converting some of the Seminoles to Islam. The Alokwian and the Pima Indians are said to contain words with Arabic roots. Cherokees claim that a number of Muslims joined their ranks and, and say that the chief of the Cherokees in, 19, in 1866 was a Muslim named Ramadiham Ibn Wati. So they are going to the Indians and they're saying, do you really realize that, that, that your religion really is an Islamic religion? And they say, you know, you are nature worshipers. You worship the world. You have your sacred number to be four. Uh, and in reality, that's what we are. We, we respect the world. The Christianity misuses the world and they, they, they destroy the world. But we respect the world. And they have had some success among American Indians in the United States. I come from the state of New Mexico, and we have a city there called Gallup, New Mexico. And if you drive through the city of Gallup, New Mexico on Route 66, you will see that there is a sign that says, the Indian capital of the world. Well, about 500 meters after you run into the Indian capital of the world sign, you see a brand new large mosque that has been built there. And I went by and I said, why in the world did you build a large mosque that's big enough for about 500 people? And somebody there in the city said, well, there are some Muslims that are here that are living. They've come from the Middle East. I said, well, how many? Well, about four or five families. Well, why do you build a mosque for 500 people when there's four or five families? Well, they don't know. They're, they're doing their mission work with, with them. They have also been very successful in the area of, uh, of the Hispanics. And they're working hard with the Hispanics in New York City and that area. And they have found that most of their success is coming from those individuals that are illegal from Latin America. 
And again, they, they promise that they will help them to get their citizenship and that they can work with them and help them. I must admit, though, that the, the success rate among the Hispanics in, in the United States has been far less than what they would expect or what they would want. It, it just simply hasn't been that successful to this point. So they are working with, with various minorities. One of the areas that they have been quite successful with is, uh, is in the area of marriage. And uh, a part of their strategy, a part of their dawa, if you please, is for them to come and to marry uh, women from the West. In fact, I've, I've seen these various statements saying, if you want to be a real missionary, you marry a woman from the West, and then you convert that woman to Islam. Now, it's against Islamic law, against Sharia law, for an, an Islamic woman to marry a man from the West. That is not allowed, but it's possible to go the other way. And a little bit later, I'm going to say that that there are different ways in Islam, uh, lies that are allowed. And one of the lies that apparently is allowed in the Quran, so say several of the writers, is that you can lie when you're trying to win a woman to um, to Islam. Or when you're trying to, excuse me, when you're trying to win a, bring a woman to be your wife, you can lie to that person and say anything that you want to say to them. I, uh, they're going to make a video of, of me, another person here, down in Southern California, and there's another lady that's going to be on the video. And this lady was a person who was the runner-up to the Miss Alabama contest uh, several years back. And she was a very lovely uh, uh, Anglo woman, very uh, sweet gal. And uh, she was a Baptist. And uh, she gives her testimony, and she said... You know, I was happy and everything was going well. I met this very nice man from the Middle East. He was a good-looking man and, and uh, very uh, personable. And, and she said, I never intended in any way, shape, or form to, to you know, fall in love or to get married with him. It didn't even come into my mind. said, but after a certain period of time, the next thing I knew, I, he asked me to marry him. And he says, I, I said, yes. And then what, she, what he said was, now, when we get married, don't worry, you know, you can remain a Christian and I'll be a Muslim. We won't let that separate us. We won't let that bother us. Everything's going to go all right. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right. And she said that at the marriage ceremony, when they were getting married, they went through all of the, signed all the papers they needed to for the United States. And then there were a bunch of papers in Arabic. And he said, sign here and here and here and here. And she said, well... What are these? Oh, they're just some, some forms, you know, just, no, don't worry about it, just sign. So she signed. And the next thing she realized, she signed away the rights to her children. She signed away that she was going to be a Muslim. She signed away uh, the fact that she was going to obey Sharia law in a relationship. She didn't realize that she was doing that, but she did. And then she said the next thing that she knew, that she was forced into, into Islam, and the next thing she knew, she was becoming a poster child for Islam. And she was on all these TV programs, you know, with her headscarf and, and a very attractive lady. And she says, I'm so happy as a Muslim and I'm so glad I converted and things are going so well. She said, I was miserable. She said that she would have to, every time that her husband had any of the men over, 
she would have to serve them and have to always keep her back to them. She could never turn and face them. And she had, had to keep her, her uh, black gown there by the door. And if anybody came and had to wear it, she said she was miserable. And finally, she divorced him and left. And she said, I, I, it was amazing how she had fallen into that. Well, one of the things, areas that they've been very effective is going down to Mexico and marrying Mexican women and then bringing them up to the United States and uh, bringing them into Islam. So marriage has been a, a part of, of their dawah. And I might add, it's been one of the more successful. I did read the other day, though, that, uh, that there are people that are leaving Islam, that are converting from, from, Christian, uh, from, from Islam back to Christianity. And there was a statement that said that the largest number of those have been women who have married Muslims and converted to Islam and then got a divorce and they've come back to Christianity. So this is the largest number that are coming back. Well, in the studies that I've made, I've tried to determine, as far as dawah and missions are concerned, this. Who is winning? Are there more Muslims being converted to Christianity or are there more Christians being converted to Islam? I would have to say that it is about even. I don't see that there is a large, uh, large amount of change. There really are not that many Christians converting on a personal level. Um, the black Americans, yes, a lot of them are, are doing it. There are, in, in many other parts of the world, people that are converting. There, there are large numbers of people in, in Western Europe converting. I have an article about 16,000 people from Western Europe that uh, have converted from uh, Christianity to Islam, excuse me, 16,000 from England that have converted from uh, uh, Islam, from Christianity to Islam. They asked them the question, why did you convert? And they said, we found nothing in Christianity, but we found that the Muslims have a faith that they believe in, that they practice, that they live, that they really work at, and so they wanted to convert to to um, uh, Islam. Well, are they being successful with their dawah? Yes, they really are. They're being successful again at making some inroads in areas such as our schools, such as in business, such as in economics, such as in media that I'm going to be talking about. They, they, they are being somewhat successful. They even have made the statement and said, the first state of the United States is going to become uh, Muslim is going to be Michigan. And if you study Michigan, you discover that 50% of Detroit, the city of Detroit, not, not the, the, the expanded city, but just the Detroit itself, over 50% of the city of Detroit are Muslims today. You go to Dearborn, Michigan, the home of Ford Motor Company, and you discover that there, 90% of Dearborn are Muslims. You have a small town between Detroit and uh, and uh, 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 and Dearborn called Hamtramck, and that's the only place in the United States where every five times a day, on the mosques in the uh, minarets, that there are loudspeakers that give the call to pray. They say that they will convert to the United States. They're going to do it through the political system. They're going to do it through uh, schools. They're going to do it through prisons. They will be able to change the United States, and the Western world to Islam. The challenge is before us, but I do believe 
that we as Christians have the answer in Jesus Christ.